Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1943 film, The Oxbow Incident. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Barrett, this was a movie that I found really interesting um, for for lots and lots of reasons, um, which which we'll uh, we'll talk about today. But let's just start with what is your history with this film in particular? Um. My history is with this film is uh, several years ago, I may have mentioned I have a friend in St. Louis who's a, a movie buff, especially old Hollywood films. And so we went through a period several years ago where we decided separately to watch uh, certain films and then talk about them afterwards. And uh, so we kind of would do various sort of thematic or genre films. And so we did a bunch of Westerns one year and that and one of those was the Oxbow Incident. So that's probably about 10 years ago or so when I first saw it. So where does this where does this movie fit in in sort of the kind of canon of westerns? Is this a movie that's regarded much? Yeah, it's it's very highly regarded. Actually, um, it's one of those movies that did very poorly at the box office. Um, in fact, Daryl Zanuck, uh, who produced it, uh, he was correct. He said this this film's going to flop. Uh, but William Wellman and Henry Fonda both really uh, really wanted to make it. So. Um, uh, he said they could make it if uh, he had Wellman. Wellman had to direct a, a, another film uh, for him, and uh, uh, Fonda had to uh, had to star in, in another film in order for him to do this. So Zanuck was was correct. The film was a uh, was box office poison, um, as you can imagine. Nobody in 1943, in the middle of the war, really wanted to watch a film like this, which has a very uh, dark view, obviously, of human nature and or society. But it got rave reviews. Um, people like Bosley Crowther, Crowther in the New York Times, who was sort of the eminence grise of film critics of the time, about Crowther raved about it. The New Republic gave it a uh, what we would call a four-star review, uh, and it can and it has a very high uh, reputation as uh, in film in film history. So yes, it's it's regarded as a a classic, uh, a unique kind of uh, Western classic. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that um, that Wellman and Fonda had to kind of uh, that this is kind of a passion project for them, and they had to make some trades to get this uh, this film made because they seem like two um, both two pretty central figures to this film and to getting this film made. Um, maybe let's start with Wellman. I did a little bit of reading about him, but like, but who is William Wellman? Yeah, well, Wellman is. Um... I think journeyman is probably too negative a term. I, I wouldn't call him a great director, but he is a director who made a number of uh, of really um, good films uh, uh, that uh, the people might might be might be familiar with. So he's 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 around for a while. He his uh, he won the first Oscar for best film uh, when he directed Wings. Uh, and his background is he actually flew for the French. In World War One, um, it was a story that a lot of people didn't believe for a while, but it turns out it, it actually is true. And so he was a real enthusiast for uh, any picture that involved flying. And so um, when he directed Wings, he actually developed some uh, technical uh, techniques that hadn't uh, been used before, like uh, mounting cameras on the plane fuselage. Um, and, and another film he did called Beggars of Life, he basically kind of invented the boom uh, and uh, he also kind of invented what was essentially the uh, the shotgun mic. So he was he was kind of an, an, an innovator. Um, he won his only Academy Award for directing the first uh, of four versions of A Star Is Born in 1937. He was also nominated as Best Director for a film called Battleground and The High and Mighty. Um, he might be you might have heard of the story of G.I. Joe, which was uh, right at the end of World War II. It was the only film in which Robert Mitchum was nominated for supporting actor. And then probably the two to me, the two films of his are the most important would be uh, The Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney and uh, a really, a really great comedy with Carol Lombard and Frederick March called Nothing Sacred. Uh, from 1937. So there really isn't, in a sense, a typical Wellman style. That's why I said I wasn't necessarily going to call him an auteur. But I would say he was a highly skilled, uh, technically proficient uh, director. Well, th that makes a lot of sense because the, my first impression as I was sort of going through his filmography is, I mean, he is really a product of the way films were made at a particular time because he'll quite frequently have two, three, four films come out in a given year that he's you know, very much part of a studio system that is cranking out movies, you know, to a certain degree. Yeah. In the silent era, they were sometimes doing two films a week. 
Um, yeah, so you're right. Definitely, uh, definitely a high production. Now, the person that I was really fascinated by is a name that I knew, but I this may be the first time I've ever actually seen Henry Fonda in something. I've never seen The Grapes of Wrath. I've never seen On Golden Pond. I've never seen any... I, I, because I'm not somebody who watches a lot of Westerns, I've never seen Henry Fonda Westerns. So um, I was really interested in who this person was, um, and I found him... I found him magnetic on screen and I'm, it's, I'm trying to get my head around why I was so drawn to him. Um, so the, the first thing that I, that I will say is that he, uh, he seems like such a, in my notes, I, at first I wrote, wrote decent person. And I was like, I don't know why, why I feel that way. I think he must remind me of people that I know that I like highly regard for their kind of like down to earth decency. And then he, he has, he definitely has an every man kind of quality to him, at least in this, I don't know how representative this role is of his, uh, his larger body of work. What I landed on is he reminds me, he has certain qualities that remind me of another actor. I love uh, who's Jack lemon, but less comedic. He doesn't not, doesn't have the comedic things that I love about Jack lemon, but there is, there's like, there is something, and it may be that they both remind me of people I grew up with that I have great affection for, but there's something that, just magnetically drew me to Henry Fonda. That's an interesting point about Fonda. He, he, uh, he's not, he's definitely not a natural comedian. There's a kind, there is a kind of gravity about him. Um, but I would say that uh, he's wonderful in one of uh, Preston Sturgis's better films, The Lady Eve uh, from 1941. So if you want to see him in, in, in a comic role, and I, and I also should say that uh, one, the, the film that he had to make in order to, um, uh, in order to make, um, uh, this this particular film was uh, was also a, uh, a a comic film called uh, The Magnificent Dope, uh, which was kind of modeled on Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So he did have a, a comic streak, but you're right. There's more of a there's more of a quiet gravity about his character, and I think especially in Oxbow Incident, there's a there's a a simmering anger in him that he keeps under control. Uh, Fonda rarely gets. Um, rarely gets cast as, a, as an absolute villain, although in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, one of his later films, he's, he's really a terrible villain. But most of the time, he's, a, he's kind of a decent guy. And I, and I get what you're saying about the Jack Lemmon connection. He does have that kind of Jack Lemmon element to him. It's interesting you say that the kind of like, like, like there's, there's, there's definitely an anger to this character, but it really is below the surface. Because even when I think about like, in the opening scene in the saloon, when he gets into that fight, it almost, it's almost surprising because you're like, I didn't know this person that had like, like that they sort of snaps into this thing. And even the way he, he relates to that seems like he's <laughs> like his heart is, I mean, he's his full body is in it when he stomps on that guy, but it's like his heart isn't in getting into this fight at the same time. I, I found him very interesting in, uh, in that way. Well, it, it's interesting to me too, Sam, because we have watched other films, probably most notably um, Doctor Strangelove, where you know sex and violence are linked uh, as as those primal impulses. And you know, so one of the things that you know about this character is he's he's very frustrated, right? Because um, his commentary on the painting, uh, his disappointment that uh, the girl he thinks has committed him hasn't waited hasn't waited for him. And so I think it's that frustration that bursts out uh, when, he, uh, when, he, when he beats the other guy up. But at the same time, it's really important for his characterization later on because he doesn't allow the opportunity to be, to be president of the lynching. He doesn't allow that as an opportunity to express his own anger or, or frustration. So that's part of how we see him as kind of representative of the civilized person who can keep those impulses un, under control. I, I should also mention um, that one of the little facts I found out about Henry Fonda biographically, and you may have found this too, was when he was 14, he and his father actually witnessed a lynching. Mm. Um, and so that's something that, you know, he, that's something that was part of his actual experience as a, as a boy. And so whether that helped inform his uh, performance, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting biographical element. Well, it does speak to, you know, like, like thinking about this is a film he really wanted to make knowing that piece of his life. It's like, okay, well that, that potentially fills in a gap of why would this be an important thing for him to yeah. to want to make? Because, you know, in some ways it's reckoning with, you know, I think about, I think about um, in the defiant ones when, uh, when 
Sidney Poitier's character says, you know, clearly you've seen a lynching because anybody, anybody that scared has seen one. So it's mm-hmm. like that this, and that, that hints to this fact that like, regardless of what your relationship to it is, if you experience that, you carry that with you. This film, even at the end in the letter talks about like, you know, in some ways the person who's dying is luckier because they're not going to have to carry this around with them for the rest of their life. So clearly I wonder if there's a little bit of channeling that as he's thinking mm-hmm. about like, this is what it means to have been part of this, to have been present for this, even if you're among the seven who vote against it. Yeah, and, and Fonda had been unhappy with a number of the roles he'd been given, even though he had some excellent roles, most notably, uh, um, you mentioned The Grapes of Wrath, where he was nominated for Best Actor, and he'd made a couple of films with John Ford um, already. But in general, he wasn't that happy with a lot of the parts that were given him. In those days, as you know, actors were under contract uh, to the studio, and they sort of had to take what they were given. So I think that that's, that that's another reason why he fought hard for this, because this really was a role that, that he wanted. One other thing about Fonda, which is apropos of nothing, but uh, as I was looking at him, I just, one of the things that struck me is, you know, so he's playing this, you know, it's this Western, they're kind of, everybody there is kind of cowboy figures. And I thought, wow, he doesn't strike me as like a physically large looming mm-hmm. presence. So I, so one of the searches that I did, I was curious, like, oh, is he like a, not a very tall person? He's six foot two, which was what sort of struck me as like, I, I was really surprised. Harry Morgan is five, six, and he's tiny. And, and when I think about it, like, oh, you look at in comparison, he looks so much smaller. But I, if he, I would, I was looking that up because I was curious, is Henry Fonda like a particularly short man? And in mm-hmm. fact, it's quite the opposite. He's a, he's a, uh, he is a very tall person, but this character doesn't carry that in that way. So maybe that's good acting too. I don't well, know. Well, he's almost lanky and uh, you can see why he was cast as young Mr. Lincoln uh, in 1939. It's only a couple inches shorter than Abe. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie starts with um, uh, it, it, should, it both starts and ends with these, with this shot that mirrors itself. Right. So the opening of this movie is you see um, you see Gil and Art ride into town. You see the dog run across the street in front of them. They go to the saloon and then the closing shot is the exact opposite, even with the dog running back the other way, um, which is, you know, clear, obviously there's a lot of clear intent with there. I'm curious your thought, you know, why, what does, what does that tell you about this story or about how we're supposed to think about this story? Well, I, I you know, there, there's, there's always two ways to read those kinds of images. Um, uh, Sam, I, I think, you know, one, one way to read it is, uh, is closure, right? Obviously opening and closing of, of, of the event. The other way to read it is uh, cyclical. Um, the, the, you know, this happened this time, uh, it's just going to happen again. So you could say that it, it, you know, the first reading, the closure reading kind of is the reading that comes out of the, the letter uh, and kind of implies, you know, a lesson has been learned and this is not going to happen again. Uh, cyclical reading says, yeah, this happened, but this is just the way people are. It's just going to happen. This is going to happen again, because that closing scene, as you said, could simply be the opening scene one more time. Yeah, it also, I mean, it, it, it also somehow made me feel like, like I was watching, um, uh, like I was watching a parable or a fable. Like this is a story somebody is telling me these two figures ride into town and then to close the story, these two figures ride out of town. It, 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 to me, it plays into the, 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 the way that this, this story has kind of a, a parable fable feel to it as well. Yeah. Once upon a time. Yes. Yes. Um, so you've already talked about this a little bit, but then we get this opening scene in the saloon, which is kind of a, a, a great, interesting scene because we learn a lot of little pieces, things get laid out that are going to come back later. Um, so I feel like we learn things about the characters. I was really fascinated. Um, I had a chance to watch this, this film again. And if everybody hasn't seen this, there's lots of ways to see this. There is, it is streaming on YouTube. There's, there's a, a really nice, uh, transfer of this that was on YouTube, which I found out after I had paid to to rent the movie and watched it a couple times. So I wanted to go back and see a scene, and I realized, oh, the whole thing was there too. Um, uh, but so you get this, you get him looking at the um, looking at the painting, and both both he and Art are staring at this painting, and he's frustrated by the fact that the guy never gets there. And then when he gets knocked out and comes to, he's looking at the painting again, and he's like, that guy never seems to get there. Um, what you hinted at this a little bit, but what do, what do you think that painting's all about? 
Yeah, well, you know, the, the painting is, is, I mean, obviously he's the guy in the painting um, and, uh, and uh, his, uh, his intended Rose is the one that he, he can't get to. So it's a, it's a great example of um, what you might kind of call eisegesis, that is reading into the painting uh, significance that uh, it has in terms of his own, his own life. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways to look at that. You know, maybe the guy in the painting is only a voyeur or maybe he has no interest in coming any closer. Uh, but for him, it's about it's about a pursuit that he can't actually um, complete. Mm-hmm. And something always, yeah, something always sort of being out of being out of reach. We also learn about the cattle rustlers that this has been going on in this town. We learn that these two are, um, it's it, their relationship to this town is interesting because clearly they've they're known in this town. Clearly, he knows Rose, who's been in this town. But then they're also seen as like these outsiders who are strangers in the town. So like you get this this complicated relationship that these two figures have to the town that this is set in. Yeah, and it's and it's the way you know. I think it's really an important element because it's the way these sorts of um, uh, these sorts of mob activities happen. Right? It's like um, you're sort of you're sort of in, but you're not you're you're sort of in the society, but you're not exactly considered an insider. And those lines start getting drawn uh, once passions start to kind of fly, fly high. So you're right They're They're familiar to the townspeople, but they're not really considered part of the part of the town. And so anytime there's a, there's an issue in which you have to begin to separate who do we trust, who do we know versus who are we not quite so sure about those lines get drawn very quickly. And it, it, it explains why they go with the mob mm-hmm. too, is to be like, well, because it's already been hinted at like, well, maybe, maybe this, this, uh, quote unquote necktie party is actually for you. So it's like, well, if we go along, at least we're not, the mob won't turn on us. So there is this, there's a degree to which they're complicit because of that too. Like they are there. They, they, they didn't have to go on this, but in some ways they had to, in order to not be suspect. And it's, it's interesting to consider the way that um, they've been introduced to us as characters that at least in, in my estimation, I don't have any concern that maybe they really are involved. Right. I mean, I, th- I think that I think it's partly because those opening scenes are really told from their point of view, um, and so we we figure on them as being essentially trustworthy. I could imagine it could have been could have been done in a different way, where we could it could have been am- ambiguous to us as the viewers as to whether or not they were involved. But it's pretty clear uh in a number of ways that they truly are innocent but as you said they've got to go along because otherwise not to do so would look pretty suspicious i think part of the way that happens is that when the when uh we're given the private conversations between gill and art we assume that they're actually being honest with each other and so when it's obvious as they talk to each other that they have nothing to do with it then that signals to us that they really are in fact innocent but that, right. that could have been a complication that the film decided not to go into um, the other thing that we learn, which I think is, is is really interesting, is the you learn the Rose backstory, and not just um, Gill's relationship to Rose, but Rose's relationship to the town. Mm-hmm. And clearly, this there was another version of a mob that kind of ran her out of town. Um, so it's like so. So this is a town that has that is sort of um, leery of people that they see as outsiders or threats because we hear that the women of the town you know, in one way, shape or form, basically ran her out of town. Right. And we have, we have no way of knowing, although you're right, we suspect that that may have been um, an unjust uh, action based on maybe jealousy. And the Mm -hmm. fact that she, you know, bags a a fancy guy from San Francisco, um, you know, you could read that either way. Maybe she really is on the take. Maybe she really is legitimate. We, we really don't know. But as you said, it certainly gives us a glimpse into a town that is, uh, pretty willing to gang up, make judgments about people and gang up on them. Absolutely. So then we get to the, 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 uh, the assembly of the mob, um, starting, starting, um, and, and we get this, uh, the appeal to the judge and this, I, I find the judge character very interesting thinking about kind of where this story goes, because there is this, we're given this vacuum of power without the sheriff there. So we have this deputy sheriff who whatever powers he has is kind of in question. Like it's, is being a deputized person, the same thing as being the sheriff or you, you know, and, but, but the judge also seems to insist on living by a certain set of rules. And he's like, well, this is not in my power. I can go talk to people about this, but I have no power here. This is the sheriff's power, but there's a vacuum of power. 
Um, and this, this leads to one of the, the things that I find really interesting about um, this movie. And it's an interesting argue, political argument that gets made from time to time uh, throughout history, which is like, okay, does MAPES have the power to deputize this, this posse? And the argument that, offend, that essentially gets made is, well, he did it. So therefore he has the power to <laughs> like, like it's, it's a sort of a dubious relationship to power and rules. And you, and, and part of this is the judge is left a little bit impotent because he insists on living by these rules where Mapes is um, maybe has a looser interpretation of them, which allows him to do some of those things, which are maybe in question. I, I really liked that setup from the very beginning because it feels like there are these people who could curb this, but they're letting something keep them from doing that, which might lead to injustice. He's trying to uphold justice and that might lead to injustice. Uh, yeah. It's, it's also part of um, one of the ways in which the film is um, kind of interested in the relationship between law and justice, uh, which is obviously something that comes out in, uh, in uh, the, the letter at the end and in, in kind of the debates that they have both here and at the actual lynching site. Um, you know, because the law is supposed to execute justice, um, but then the law can be uh, at times, especially as the as the judge tries to deal with the gathering mob, the law seems to have no actual power at that point. And 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 that's one of the you know that's one of the things that a society only works if people actually are willing to follow the rules, uh, and if there's nobody there to kind of enforce it, you know, the judge really doesn't have a way to. Uh, he has to argue with them and get them to agree with his view of what is legal and proper and what is not. And short of being able to enforce that view, because they've actually got the power in a sense, he really can't do anything. So the law is kind of helpless uh, in order to enforce real justice. Well, and even, and even in terms of sort of uh, law and justice, there's the, the whole idea that they all agree to, li- to, to sort of go by um, majority rule. Which is like that—that's not the law. The law is not you get a group, but 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 it's like they've now created a new set of rules that they're going to use, and that's going to be how they mete out justice instead of following the law, which is, you know, you bring these people in and and there is due process and, and things like that. So so I've I also loved that moment because I knew I knew the moment that um that they 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 agreed to majority rule. I'm like, oh, we're gonna get. Uh, 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 out on the range courtroom drama of some sort. And I love a courtroom drama. I'm like, I know where this is. I know this is where this is headed to a certain degree. So I got very excited at that moment as to where I realized this story was going to head to a certain degree. Well, I also, I also like what you said about due process, Sam, because that's part of what they, they, they don't, according, according to their lights, uh, they are actually, they have actually created a process that are following, Right. So even the fact that they put um, Colonel Tetley, who is himself a very, uh, Major Tetley rather, who is himself a very um, dubious character, right? He shows up on his horse in his uniform, which of course is a Confederate uniform. Um, and they pretend that this gives uh, a lynch mob legitimacy because you have a man in a uniform at the head of it. And then after they've captured the, uh, the, the, the alleged rustlers, they go through what they think is the gathering of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they try to weigh this evidence. So what you, what you get, it, it, it reminds me of the, of the idea that um, in, in the medieval world, um, and maybe in the ancient world as well, one of the, um, one of the greatest penalties was for counterfeiting. Um, uh, and, and the danger of a counterfeit is, of course, that it looks genuine. And so it's interesting to me that they don't just engage in, un, in, in a, it, it's not chaotic. What, what, what it is, is it's a fake imitation of what a, a trial looks like. Um, so to me, that's, that's how then, of course, they're able to justify it to themselves. Because, well, we followed the process, you know, and uh, we cross-examined them. We looked at the evidence. We gave them a chance to refute it. Um, so, yeah, we had a, quote, trial. And then as we go further along, we, we start to see the shape of this. Um, there's, so there's 28 people who end up going out um, in this posse. Some of them are, you know, we don't, we don't really get defined very well, but we do get, a, we do get a, a certain group of characters. Is there anybody you, in particular in the group that, that jumps out at you that you want to talk about? Because there's, there's a lot of people we could talk about here. But. Well, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people. And um, 
I don't know, I guess, you know, just quickly, I, I would talk about, I mentioned three. Um, certainly Ma Greer, uh, played by the great character actress uh, Jane Darwell. Um, just, just the fact that you have a, a woman coming along, and in some ways, she seems to be the one, at least early on, who is most inciting them uh, to, to violence. Uh, then you have, um, you know, Harry Davenport, Mr. Davies, uh, who is kind of the, consistently the voice of conscience, the voice of reason. Um, and then I think the very interesting character of Sparks, uh, played by, by Lee Whipper. Um, I didn't know Lee Whipper at all, to be frank. Um, he actually was, uh, just as an aside, he was the first African-American to join the Actors' Equity Association. And he was actually one of the founders of the Negro Actors Guild of America. Uh, he was in the Broadway production of Mice and Men, and then he was actually in the 1939 film version. Um, he's a very interesting character. You know, he's he's uh, not only the, not only the voice of, of reason, but the voice of religion. So I find those three characters and their role to be kind of really the most the most interesting. And and I would also say that it, it is really an ensemble cast. Um, this is a film that was nominated only for best film. Right. So, and, and, and really Henry Fonda is the quote star just based on his reputation, but it really is an ensemble. There really isn't any single performance that is the, the lead actor in a sense. Well, and, uh, of the people you mentioned, I think Ma is really interesting, um, especially in light of the language that Tetley uses towards his son. Because Tetley mm -hmm. is like, you know, I don't want a, I don't want a feminine son and these types of things. And then you have, you, you, in the end, you get, you get, uh, you get Tetley's son and Ma sort of paired up as people who are supposed to beat the horses to, you know, to actually pull the rope as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, the son, the son won't do it, but Ma is the one who's sort of most interested. So like, even, even that sort of language of like, um, you know, that, that this sort of, particular definition of masculinity that ma actually in some ways matches far more so than than Tetley's son does uh and then we encounter the uh the the suspects um you know so you have you have donald martin played by dana andrews and it it took me a second i saw that face and was like why do i know him and then i realized uh best years of our lives yeah. uh uh so we have we have uh martin uh juan martinez and uh alva hardwick um, you know, and they, and so we have this encounter with, uh, with them and, um, and we get sort of the, the trial from there. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that Dana Andrews is great in this movie as playing this idea of like playing both wrongfully accused, but also somebody who's, uh, not overly emotional about it, but is like trying to just lot rationally convince people of things. And, and it breaks my heart when he says, you know, like, I know it's not helpful to have a dead man as a, as a, uh, as a witness or a dead man as an alibi or something, but it's just like, mm. like I, he does, he, he plays that part really well. And, you know, I, I'm convinced that he is, that he is innocent, even though the, you know, the evidence that were, that were pointed to during the, you know, trial part of this you know all of that does feel so suspect um the whole time i have to say i kept i kept assuming this was going to end with them not being killed i was <laughs> i was genuinely shocked by the fact even when they had them up on the horses and when the ropes and i thought okay when is the when is the thing going to intervene mm -hmm. is the sheriff going to come and intervene and shame mm -hmm. them and when the horses ran off and then mapes just to put a point on it you know takes out the rifle and i realized Oh, this movie's different than what I thought it was going to be. You know, one of the uh, one of the reviews of the film uh, was really one of the things it said about the film was it it, it enabled uh, the film was able to deliver its message without being being hampered by the Hayes Code. And we've talked a little bit about. That I about wondered about that, and I think that's part of the reason, Sam, probably why, especially when you're watching a film from 1943. You know, when you expect that injustice will not be done because, you know, in the Hayes Code, you're supposed, you know, supposed to make sure that the, 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 the bad guys get their comeuppance. Uh, and this is a film that allows uh, a whole bunch of bad guys to actually su succeed. So I think that's that's really to the credit of the film. And that's why I think you as the as the viewer expected something uh, different uh, to, to happen. I, I also want to say as an aside, and we may talk more about this later on. One of the one of the things that I think a lot about when I watch films in this era 
is I think about the difference that technology makes. Um, and I think about the fact that um, if this were a contemporary event, uh, you would have a cell phone and you would just call the sheriff and you would get, uh, you would get things all clarified. Um, but I'm also thinking about the fact that uh, we also live in a technological age in which we know that such electronic means of communication can actually only exacerbate misunderstandings. So it's a very interesting double-edged sword as I, as I was looking at this. So I'm thinking, you know, this is typically how rumors spread. Um, and because this whole thing is based on a rumor, it's based on an unverified report. And gosh, if you could pick up the phone and straighten it out, nothing of this would happen. But then I look at what happens on social media today and I say, I don't know about that. I think that maybe uh, a false report could have been amplified and it would have been even more likely that an event like this would have happened uh, because we don't know anything about mob violence in our time, right? We haven't seen anything like, uh, like this happen. Right, right. <laughs> um, no, I, and, and I, I found it uh, you know, so interesting that like, the sh- you know, we, we know that the sheriff is at Kincaid's and I think Davies or the judge even makes this point. It's like, he's already, the sheriff is already there on the scene, you know? So that, so they're always there. There is this, this sense of that. And then there's, there's this, if you pay attention to what people in the, the, the mob sort of s- say, they do say things almost like, well, if we don't do it now, if we wait, maybe we'll sort of lose the energy for this. You know, and it's like, it's such a, it, it is such a strange, but very human uh, thought to say, like, like, like there is this sort of action of this moment. And the longer that we draw this out, the the more we might lose our stomach for, for this, even though, you know, that's just maybe just discretion. Well, yeah. Or you, you think maybe you're going to get a moment like what happens in the defiant ones, right? When Lon Chaney Jr. turned, turns the mob back and, mm-hmm. and that, and, and that, that particular trope, it doesn't work in, the, in, in this film. The other thing I would note in terms of foreshadowing the fact that things are not going to turn out well for the three is I think it's a, an aside between Gill and Art um, where somebody says, uh, the sheriff's not going to get here in time, is it? Yes. And, and, you know, and, and I think, I think what, you know, when you look at that remark, you, I think that tells you, uh, no, the sheriff isn't going to get there in time. But again, we've been conditioned by films like this to think, no, nah, no, nah, the sheriff is going to ride in and everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And, and I love when they, uh, when they get to the vote that, I mean, obviously Davies and Sparks are the first two to kind of walk over. I found it interesting how long it took for Gill and Art to go there. They yeah. weren't the they weren't the third and fourth people. They were the I think fifth and sixth or sixth and seventh people um, to go over, which I found really interesting because because we're privy to to their individual conversations a little bit more. I'm like I, I had this moment of feeling like, am I going to be betrayed by them? And they're they're not going to go over. And even though I knew, well, of course they are, right? Like they're nothing about what I'm seeing from them are going to say that. So actually, I found that to be really. Uh, really effective in that way. This also had a, to, you know, to connect back to a, a later Henry Fonda thing. It had a, I was wondering, are we going to get a 12 angry men kind of thing where some, where they're going to keep making the case and keep winning people over. So there is just also that powerful moment when he, they keep cutting between looking at the two sides and it's just like, it's only seven and nobody else is coming over there. And you realize the vote has happened now. It's not, it's not the, the vote is not a theoretical thing. It is the thing that has happened. Well, I think the delay makes a lot of sense because Gill and Art are still, they're still weighing what's, what's the right move because they, they, they have to make a calculation between, you know, do we stand up on the side of right uh, or do we risk our own? And is that risking our own necks? And so I think it's good that they're, that, that they're shown as continuing to make that, uh, that calculation. Another thing from uh a little bit earlier in the in the the film that that struck me and i just thought was really it's a small thing but was really well done and it sort of speaks to where this movie is headed is when the juan martinez character runs off and everybody Mm -hmm. goes you know goes to get him and they start firing guns and the gunfire goes on a long time and there's a lot of guns and it is just this sense of like this that was the moment when I started to think, oh, maybe this isn't going to end well, because it was like everyone was looking for an outlet and an opportunity to fire their gun to do something. And, you know, um, so the fact that he came back alive 
with just a bullet in his leg was kind of shocking. And even like this happens too when art gets shot too. There's just this sense of like everybody gets so worked up in the moment that there is this potential for. I mean, that sounded more like a war movie, you know, when you're hearing yeah. those, hearing all those guns go off. So that, so that that's, um, that this, that this could easily build to, to a moment like that. Um, I, I thought that moment was a small moment, but pretty powerful to think about kind of where the story was headed. And, and we should note Juan Martinez is, a, is of course, Anthony Quinn. Um, and it's actually not that early a role for Quinn. He'd actually been making films in Mexico, uh, you know, 10 years before that. Uh, but, you know, he had a pretty he had a pretty significant career, right? He, he was nominated for an Oscar for Zorba the Greek, probably one of his most famous roles. He won the Academy Award for uh, Best Supporting Actor twice in Viva Zapata, and uh, he played Paul Garkian in Lust for Life. Uh, so but in terms of his Hollywood career, this is this is a, is a fairly early one. Uh, and and he's a he's a great character just because he represents a kind of um, well, a couple of interesting things about the character. First of all, uh, he is. Uh, morally or ethically suspect. Uh, it's possible that he actually is guilty of a number of things. Um, but at the same time, um, he goes from no sabe to, yeah, I speak 10 languages. Um, and he could have thrown that knife into the guy's chest. Uh, so he actually shows a kind of restraint. And then there's the taking the bullet out of his own leg. I mean, he's just a really fascinating macho character. But at the same time, it's almost as though he gives the mob a little bit of an excuse because mm -hmm. he probably is really a bad guy. Um, although he hasn't done this particular bad thing. Right. And there's this sense that um, also as the, the most clear outsider in terms of, I mean, he is Mexican and no, and with the exception of the, the one other character, nobody else is, he probably knows where this is headed. <laughs> and he, so, yeah. so, so actually the, the, uh, he's the one who attempts an escape because he realizes that's his shot. And I think when that fails, he kind of knows like there's probably not an out here that we're not going to talk our way out of this, which is, which also fits the, you know, even after he has shown that he does speak English, they start questioning him and he goes back to no Sabe. And he's just like, I, this, I am not going to, there's nothing I can say that's going to change what you have to say. And it was interesting to me that his confession was evidently genuinely a confession. I thought maybe if since they were speaking Spanish together, he mm -hmm. was going to kind of concoct something with the Spanish, other Spanish speaking guy, or he was going to say something that hadn't been communicated, or he was going to betray the other two guys. But no, he really wanted to confess, which, you know, the film doesn't have a, a strong religious message, but it certainly is there. And so he kind of fits into that notion that ultimately everybody there is answerable to a higher power for what they do or don't do. It also sets up the great line when, uh, Gil says to Art, that must have been quite a life. Just watching him, they don't know what they're saying, but it's like clearly he's saying some stuff. It's so I like stuff. that. So did you did you read about the the difference? This is based on a book. For one thing, I, I watching this, I assume this was based on a stage play because it it would work well as a stage play in in some ways. But it's based on a book. Did you read about any of the differences between this and the book? There's a couple significant significant differences between this and the book. Yeah, I did. I did read about one, but I'll, I'll let you go ahead, Sam. So, so the, the, the one that jumped out at me, uh, one of them was that in the end, the sheriff's response is very different. So in this movie, uh, the sheriff, once he gets there and he, you know, he basically tells all of them, like, essentially you guys are going to pay for this, right? The sheriff comes as this figure of justice and it's, and it's sort of saying like, it doesn't matter that there's 21 of you, like, I'm mm -hmm. not going to show mercy on you. Apparently in the book, the sheriff just kind of stares everyone down and says he will forget all of this. So I wonder if that's part of the Hayes code switch too, to be like, well, we, we have to, we have to let people know that there, that, th that this isn't a world where this group is just going to, now we don't know what the consequences are going to be. I can't imagine the sheriff is going to have these 21 people killed for murder, but, um, but there is there, the, but there is this sense that, that the, the there is a return of the law and the law is going to deal with this in some way where in the book that seems like that was the opposite but you know sam that sheriff seems in the one in the book seems the sheriff much more likely to appoint somebody like moats yes than the sheriff in the film <laughs> yes um the other big change is that in the book the letter is referred to but never read like if you're reading the book, you don't hear the words of the letters. So that's actually a creation of the screenwriter 
um, uh, which I found very interesting because that's a that's a that's a big um, it's a big moment in the movie, and I didn't know whether we were going to hear the letter or not. And then so so we get to this the, this scene back at the bar, and there's there's some great shots of faces here. This is this is a movie that has a lot of faces in it, but the great shots of just rows of faces, people sitting at the bar, kind of trying to figure out what what have we done and what happens next. I mean, it 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 it, it had that feeling of a, of a bunch of kids who. Have you know were just discovered by their parents or their principal or something waiting waiting for the authority to come out and um, so that so that's sort of weighing heavily on them and then this leads to um, to Gil referencing the letter and then saying you know telling Art he should read this and then Art can't read so he reads it out loud um, and I actually read read some some things about this the scene of Gil reading the letter and one of the things that's interesting is. Um, it's actually a very strange shot because Gil's face is, as he turns to read the letter, you can't see Henry Fonda's eyes. It's blocked by, um, it's blocked by Art's hat almost the entire, um, almost the entire time, which apparently um, mesmerized a young Sam Peckinpah when he saw this <laughs> and was like, just was like blown away by the fact that 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 made that scene seem less like emotional and weepy and more kind of matter of fact or, or like less clear, like what the emotion of that was. And apparently he loved that scene and that really stuck with him. The other, the other difference in the book I read about was that it's the uh, it's Tetley's son who commits suicide at the end uh, that he hang, he hangs himself rather than Tetley shooting, shooting himself. And then Tetley uh, kills himself after that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's a whole element that we really have. We, we talked about very briefly at the beginning, Sam, but this whole notion of mass of, of performative masculinity, you know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to actually be a man and to be a man evidently means to engage in acts of, of violence. Um, and you mentioned the screenwriter putting in the, uh, the letter. I have to say, this was a screenwriter I had not been familiar with. It's uh, his name was Lamar, uh, Lamar Trotty or Lamar Trotty. Uh, he, he wrote, he worked closely with John Ford and he wrote Young Mr. Lincoln. He wrote Drums Along the, the Mohawk. Um, he wrote, interestingly enough, he wrote Steamboat Round the Bend, which was the John Ford film playing in, in Paper Moon. Oh. Uh, he wrote the story of Alexander Graham Bell, which also starred Henry Fonda. And uh, he won an Oscar for a film I had never heard of or seen called Wilson which is a, a portrait of Woodrow Wilson from 1944. So he had a really, uh, I was not familiar with him before, but he had quite, a, uh, quite an illustrious career and he wrote a number of really fine films. So how does this, how does this the letter scene land for you? Because I kind of, as I was reading, there's sort of mixed, mixed feelings. Some people preferred the book sense of like, there is this thing, but we don't actually hear. Others were found that that to be a particularly moving and important to sort of hear the words that uh, that Martin writes. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, f- I think you have to have the letter read. I, I think that you can't keep talking about the letter the, the way they do earlier on without actually producing it. I think that sometimes um, relying on the audience to kind of fill in a detail without actually showing it because what you show could not match the audience's imagination, right? That works in some cases. I don't think it works here. I think you have to have the letter read. Um, And I think even though you could argue that it's fairly um, heavy handed, um, if you you were wondering whether this film had a moral, uh, you don't have to wonder anymore. But I just, I just think that it, it works so well, in part because, as you already talked about, Sam, in part because of the way it's shot, um, and in part because uh, it's, it's as though uh, there's a moral duty being fulfilled, not only in reading the letter, but then when it's clear that Gil and Art are, are going to follow through and, and go help this widow out. Um, I think that's, I think those are, you know, you could say that's a little bit of Hayes Code expectation going on there. Um, I think you've got to, you've got to throw the audience that bone, if I can put mm-hmm. it that way. There's, there's got to be this notion that this guy didn't die in vain. Uh, he mm-hmm. didn't die in vain because of the influence he's had on Gill and Art. And he doesn't die in vain because he's actually helped us understand why we've watched these very sometimes painful 74 minutes. Well, and it, 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 I mean, it circles back to what we were talking about, about like, well, how do we understand, 
how do we understand the law? How do we understand what justice is? How do we understand our connection to each other? I, mean, I found it interesting the the sort of take that um, con- uh, like human conscience is the thing that um, connects us to God, but also connects us with each other and connects us all historically. Um, the thing that struck me about this movie, when I, especially as I'm thinking about some of the themes that we're talking about, uh, and 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 the letter. When I watched this, I wasn't thinking about the context of when this movie came out, but I don't know if the version you watched had this, but um, when the final credits ended on your version, was there anything else on the screen after the credits? Because mine had no. something. Mine had an uh, an ad for war bonds, that mm-hmm. this theater sells war bonds. And I was like, oh, you could look at all of this also as this, like, um, you know, talking about kind of what happens when, systems that are built to create, you know, political systems that are built to create justice get out, get sort of bent out of whack or people start to bend the idea of justice or start to claim powers and, 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 and wield powers in ways that are kind of extrajudicial and these types of things. And it's like, Oh, it's not hard to see this also as something um, happening. I mean, it's a, it's a very depressing story, but happening in the midst of thinking like, you know, soldiers going off to fight in uh, to fight in World War II and thinking about things that are happening in Nazi Germany and how, you know, there there was a government system that was built there. And even the means of that government were used and bent and reworked to do this other thing, to mete out this other kind of injustice. Um, and so so I found I, I, it, it just seeing that flash onto the screen made me think it, made, it contextualized more of the movie to me to think like, Oh, I, I, I wasn't reading it in that context. I was reading it just as like this kind of human parable, but it was interesting to think about it in terms of world war two. And the thing that Henry Fonda does after he makes this movie or the one he had to do to make this movie, he immediately then joins the Navy and is in the Navy until 1946. Yeah, it, it, this is actually, it's the penultimate film that he made. He actually filmed a, a, a war film called The Immortal Sergeant um, after he filmed um, Oxbow Incident, but then they got reversed and they got released in reverse order. So this was the last Henry Fonda film that was in the theater before he headed off to, to World War II. And in this movie, uh, in 19, uh, is in the same Oscars as Casablanca that we wa- mm-hmm. that we watched and talked about. So it's interesting to think of about two very different. I mean, th- this is a story that leaves you, like Zanuck was saying, like it's it's a powerful story and it leaves you with a lot to think about. But you you walk out of this heavy hearted, where you walk out of a movie like Casablanca, like ready to like join in the fight. I mean, <laughs> like like uh, it's very very different feelings, but. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought a lot about World War II after the movie was over. I thought about potential connections there. So, is there anything else you want to talk about with this film? There's a couple other little, really little know, fun we, pieces. We, yeah, yeah. I just want to say something. We were you know talking about some of the performances that stand out, but the other the other one that I want to point out because he's often overlooked. Um, he appears in so many films uncredited. Is uh, Francis Ford who is John Ford's brother, older brother, um, who had a really significant career in silence and then kind of got left behind, you know, when, when talkies came in, he had acting roles, but he didn't have any more directing or producing roles. And he and his brother were always kind of at odds with, with each other. But anyway, he plays dad. Uh, and, uh, and he, and it's, it's, and he also get, appears in some of his brother's films a, a, as well. But I think it's interesting because there is this, John Ford, Henry Fonda, Francis Ford uh, connection uh, connection going on. And one of the things that uh, that John Ford said was the only unbelievable part of this story is that his brother refused to drink at the end before he was hung. <laughs> he said that was completely out of character for him. But otherwise, otherwise he thought it was great. He thought the movie was great. And I should also mention, since we often do this when we talk about these films, that the uh, the orig- originally the role of Gil Carter was offered to uh, Gary Cooper. Oh, interesting. Uh, and you could imagine Cooper in this role, obviously, but he he turned it down, uh, and uh, and so Fonda took the opportunity. The other thing I want to mention, a purely biographical detail, but it connects us to another film that we watched, The Shop Around the Corner. Uh, Henry Fonda's first marriage was to Margaret Sullivan uh, oh. in the in the early '30s. So, and he's he actually was great friends with Jimmy Stewart. They were only in one film together, and it's interesting because they had very different politics, uh, but they were very good friends. I have one other question for you, and 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 you may not know the answer to this, but as I'm looking at the the cast list for this, there are a number there are a number of actors who are uncredited, 
but they're usually when I think of an uncredited performance, I, it's usually like, well, that's a very small part. Maybe this person has a line, but like um, uh, Lee Whipper was uncredited. The guy sure. that plays Mapes is uncredited. Um, uh, people like that, like like those seem like significant roles in this movie. Why would those be uncredited roles? Yeah, that's that is a, that's a good question, Sam. I'd love to investigate that because I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, however, I will now, but I will mention one other small part that did get credited, which is Margaret Hamilton. Yes, uh, the, the Wicked Witch of the West as Mrs. Larch, and uh, she, oh, you know, she has what uh, thirty seconds on on screen, but she gets credited, and uh, yes. she's, she's she's wonderful. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, so what do you have for us for next week? Well, we are um, we are in a run of westerns, um, which you now know, and um, I'm I'm. There's a number of things that tie this run together, and one of them is investigating the role of law uh, on the frontier. Uh, that's one of the things that holds it together. The other is thinking a little bit about our earlier discussion of those directors who had gone off to war and what they did when they came back. So um, we're going to do another Henry Fonda film. Um, and this is the first film that Fonda made after World War II. Also the first film that John Ford made after World War II, My Darling Clementine, uh, with Henry Fonda as Wyatt Earp. It's one of many films uh, about, the, about the Earps and the shootout of the OK Corral. So we'll talk a little bit about um, John Ford and the making of the myth of the American West, uh, uh, which, is, which is happening in uh, My Darling, Darling Clementine. And it's... Uh, one of uh, one of Fonda's kind of signature roles. Oh, I'm very excited. I've never seen this movie as a movie I've heard of. Um, I, uh, uh, I know Ford uses the, the uh, visual iconography sort of a Frederick Remington for a lot of these. So I'm, I'm excited to see the, I'm excited to see the visuals in this movie. I don't know that I've ever seen a John Ford movie. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited for this. Well, I figure we've talked enough about Ford. We've referenced Ford enough that it's time to actually watch a Ford. Fantastic. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this. I really found this movie um, to be interesting. I also loved the runtime, the the seventy five minute run. Like, like it is, it is. It's interesting to think about like what what the right length for a movie is, and it obviously depends on the movie and the story. And I feel like I feel like nowadays movies are often. I feel like they're a little more bloated, and I find myself saying this was a little bit longer than it needed to be. Like this was this was a very tight movie that I that really made me. Um, think more than I thought it would, and it, and it managed to surprise me in a number of ways. So I, I really, really enjoyed this. So thank you for recommending this. That's all the time we have. We will be back next week to talk about my darling Clementine in the video store. <laughs>